joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I am Marianne Butler, a barrister at Fountain Court, specialising in professional discipline and regulation. In this episode, we explore the lessons learned from defending the most significant cases in the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal and on appeal in recent years. I'm joined by the individuals who fought those cases, the counsel and solicitor giants of this field, namely Tim Dutton, CBE KC, advises and acts in many of the most prominent and complex professional discipline cases and has conducted some of the largest multi-party cases in the field. He's ranked in both Chambers and Partners and the Legal 500 as a leading silk and a star individual in professional discipline. He's described in the directories as the king of law society regulatory work. Patricia Robertson Casey frequently appears in high-profile disciplinary cases before the SDT and regularly advises magic circle firms and major national firms on handling SRA investigations. She is ranked in both Chambers and Partners and the Legal 500 for her work in professional discipline. Richard Coleman Casey has substantial experience of disciplinary proceedings and investigations in relation to the financial services industry and the legal profession, and is regularly instructed in matters involving the Financial Conduct Authority, the Financial Reporting Council, the Financial Ombudsman Service, and the SRA. He's ranked in both Chambers and Partners and Legal 500 for professional discipline. Fergal Cathy is a partner at Clyde Co and has particular focus on complex disputes and regulatory investigations involving legal professionals. He is acting in, in some of the most sensitive and high-profile regulatory investigations and disciplinary cases, advising law firms and individuals on professional conduct issues, including their regulatory exposures and reporting obligations. Fergal is ranked in Chambers and Partners for professional discipline and has previously been listed among the lawyers' Hot 100. Michael Stacey is a partner at Russell Cook and has a particular specialism in regulatory and public law. He acts for regulators, businesses, charities and private clients in regulatory investigations, disciplinary proceedings, judicial reviews, professional liability disputes and other regulatory litigation. Michael is ranked in Chambers and Partners for professional discipline and as a next generation partner by Legal 500. Ian Miller is a partner at Kingsley Napley and specialises in legal ethics, investigations and public law matters. Acting in many of the leading cases relating to the regulation of lawyers in England and Wales, he has advised a number of large law firms on SRA-related issues. Ian is ranked in Legal 500 Hall of Fame and Chambers and Partners for professional discipline. Between them, these stellar individuals have been involved in all of the following key cases, amongst numerous others. Namely, the SRA's prosecutions of Lee Day and others, the longest hearing so far in the SDT arising out of the El Swedi inquiry in the war in Iraq, the SRA and Wingate and Evans, which addressed the meaning of integrity, amongst other matters, the SRA and Solicitor Z concerning non-disclosure agreements, the SRA and Baker McKenzie, Mr Senior and others, relating to the firm's investigations of allegations of sexual misconduct, and the SRA against Mishcons and Miss Ellen regarding the alleged provision of banking facilities through the client account. Part two of our discussion covers SDT proceedings, focusing in particular on the conduct of the proceedings themselves, the SDT's trial process, dealing with media interest and the position on disclosure. I'm very grateful to our speakers for joining me and for making it such an interesting discussion. I hope you enjoy the episode. So moving on from issues of privilege and redaction, uh, what can a solicitor or firm expect from the SRA in terms of the format of the investigation and its usual life cycle? I think the starting point is, well, the SRA's entry point into an investigation and what they do in the initial stages can vary quite considerably. They might simply have a full report from or self-report from a firm that, that they consider sufficient. They might write and ask questions of those involved um, in order to clarify the position. I've certainly had cases where they simply write to the the individuals or the firm setting out certain matters and saying, please, can you provide a comment without actually saying what their thinking is? And then they have more formal steps such as they can commission a, a forensic investigator who's internal to the SRA to provide a report. And those those FI reports are normally involve a site visit of the firm, quite detailed examination of documents, the interviewing of the individuals concerned and then the production of, of a fairly full and thorough report, which is then sent back to the SRA, which another part of the SRA to then consider what steps to be taken. But from all of those sort of quite wide-ranging preliminary stages, you end up at its heart of the SRA's procedure is something called a Rule 2.3 notice under its um, disciplinary procedures. And that's where if the SRA are considering doing anything, 
they are required under their rules to serve that notice, which sets out allegations, sets out the facts relied upon by the um, in support of those allegations, and obviously all the evidence that sits beneath that. And that is the opportunity of the individual partner or the firm to then provide its response to the SRA. And it's it's difficult to overstate the significance of the response to that document in the entire process, because if it goes further to the STT, that will be effectively the outline defence. Or if you are seeking to persuade the SRA to take no action or to to take a more limited action than it might have in mind in the notice, because the notice does specify what they have in mind, then this is the opportunity to persuade the SRA that it's pitched its notice in the wrong way. So it's central to the whole process to get that response right. And that, Ian, goes back to what Patricia said earlier about front-loading the process and doing the investigation and the thorough sort of forensic review of the case at an early stage. I don't know about others' experience, but mine in the last couple of years certainly has been that the SRA um, has had a tendency to move straight to that Rule 2.3 notice stage, effectively saying to the solicitor, we're going to prosecute you, but we'll just give you one chance to state your case. Um, And I think there's often a, a sense that at that point, a view has already been taken. And, and quite often clients say to me, well, this is going to be like turning around an oil tanker. But my experience is that it's wrong to have that mindset because there are opportunities to make representations. And in many cases, the SRA does properly engage with the other side of the story. But I do think a lot of time and expense could be saved and frankly stress avoided if the SRA would give individuals an earlier opportunity to engage before the notice is served. And and I don't often see interviews happening with potential respondents um, by the SRA before the Rule 2.3 notice is served as much as we used to see. Certainly, I would agree, Fogel. I think that's a real change in the way the SRA has approached its its, uh, investigative process. And instead, one is quite often confronted with, for the first time, seeing the allegations in the form of a notice, which is very often riddled with both factual and legal errors. And then there's quite an extended exercise that needs to be done in unpicking that, correcting the factual errors, engaging the SRA on the correct legal analysis. And one of the challenges in all of that is it's very important to do all of that whilst keeping the tone one of constructive engagement with the SRA, not hectoring them, not talking down to them, not being dismissive. But as you say, there is everything to play for because actually many more notices are served than cases end up in the SDT. So there's a genuine chance that you might yet deflect the SRA from its indicated course. Ideally, you bring the casework around to seeing your the case your way. But crucially, there is an individual beyond the caseworker who is your intended audience because the, the, the fate of the, sec- of the 2.3 notice is to be served up to the decision maker at the SRA who's asked to endorse or decide on a different course of action to that suggested by the caseworker. So it is conceivable that you will be able to influence that individual to take a different view even if you fail with the caseworker. But in order to do that, you've got to make it as easy as possible for that individual to get to grips with what you're saying. So you've got to present things in a way which is easy for an individual who's being parachuted into the thing, who, unlike the caseworker, hasn't lived with it for however many months it's taken the SRA to reach this point, to see what the main parameters are and what the realistic outcome should be in the process. And and in doing all of that, you've got to be realistic about what it is you're trying to persuade them about. You may not be able to head it off from the SDT altogether if finally the view that one takes of the matter is going to depend on your client's oral evidence and whether or not that's accepted. But you may still be able to reduce the scope of the allegations substantially, and that in itself is a prize well worth having. Yeah, and we've seen a number of cases where Frankly, the, the charge sheet has been rather overloaded. Case has been over-prosecuted and, and those cases sometimes haven't ended well for the SRA. So I think much better all round if the case is really focused on what matters. 
And I think particularly because for a client, the stresses involved in facing this are all the greater if the allegations you're facing include allegations of dishonesty. I mean, that's the absolute killer. And in that regard, I think what one has seen is a tendency on the part of the SRA to make those allegations in circumstances where, quite frankly, I think a civil practitioner putting together a pleading would very much hesitate before considering that that was justified on the basis of the evidence that they've got. And it is realistic, where that's the case, to persuade the SRA away from advancing an unfounded allegation of dishonesty. And it may then be much easier for your client, apart from anything else, psychologically much easier for your client to face the ensuing proceedings with some degree of composure. Could I add there as well, Patricia, as well as um, charge sheets being overloaded with allegations of, of dishonesty, in my experience, the SRA are now routinely alleging lack of integrity. Uh, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's almost an exceptional case not to have an allegation of lack, of lack of integrity. And an allegation of a lack of integrity is very serious for a professional. So it puzzles me why the SRA are charging it in cases where they're only seeking a, a relatively minor sanction. So they're, they're quite prepared to resolve those cases uh, on the basis of agreed outcomes, but they want their admission of a lack of integrity. And that, that raises the question of whether really that those allegations are, are properly made. Well, I quite agree. I think lack of integrity is quite often being used where you might just say cock up. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is not in most people's real world, lack of integrity. Well, on your point about making serious allegations, I've certainly in recent experience come across allegations being made too early, as Fergal has indicated, where I doubt it would be professionally open to uh, a lawyer to make the allegation. So I think it's a very, very wise counsel to look carefully, particularly at the very early made allegations of either dishonesty or lack of integrity, because they may simply have no proper factual basis for them. Can I just say that I, I think there is that trend, a willingness to advance allegations of dishonesty or lack of integrity where perhaps they're not justified. To some extent, it's balanced out, I think, by a greater institutional willingness on the part of the SRA to change its mind. There is now the power of um, review on the grounds of material flaw, change of evidence and so on. And I think in practice, although it may not be the greatest comfort one would want in practice, one does see the SRA uh, increasingly willingly to move away from fairly strong positions on honesty and integrity. Sometimes the other extreme where they drop, drop the case altogether. I've seen that more than once in recent years. I would agree that we are seeing a willingness to move from a position first adopted. But I have to say, in terms of how a regulator behaves, overloaded requests for disclosure that you have to push back on and negotiate about when actually realistically they weren't necessary for the purpose. Overloaded charge sheets peppered with allegations of dishonesty that are not properly founded. It shouldn't actually be the case that only well-represented clients who can mount the fight back can then get the SRA to review its position on that. It's actually disproportionate behaviour by the regulator in the first place. And that's a tendency that sooner or later, perhaps the right case will put the right shot across their bowels and cause them to row back from that. And let's not forget the, the stress and anxiety caused by being in receipt of an allegation of dishonesty, because if it's proven, that's the end of your career. Yes. Thank you for that. I think the only point I'd add is, and it goes to the what you made, Patricia, about how there's always everything to play for. The fact that even once an authorised decision maker has made the decision to refer a case to the SDT, I've seen several instances of that decision to refer having been rescinded. So this is this is well after you've had a notice, representations have gone in, a decision has been made to refer, and then in time that decision has been rescinded. So there are a lot of opportunities to state your case, and there really is everything to play for. And of course, this is all before we get to the SDT, so it's a long drawn-out process that may wear you down. Okay, so as part and parcel of the process of seeking to persuade the SRA to reduce the number and seriousness of allegations in play, or better still, drop the whole matter in its entirety, what are the kinds of issues that need to be considered? 
Well, I think it's pretty essential to be realistic about what the outcome is that you might be able to negotiate to in this scenario. And we've touched on a, a number of them already. So, Ending the investigation with no disciplinary action is, of course, the dream outcome. But that is realistically only going to be the case where you really can persuade the SRA that there's nothing to see here. And I can certainly remember cases where that is the outcome we've managed to achieve. But the minute there is, in fact, something that uh, realistically can be viewed as misconduct, albeit perhaps at the minor end of the scale, then you are more realistically going to be looking at the SRA's internal sanctions and potentially rebukes and matters of that kind. And quite quickly, given how limited their fining powers are, you are into territory where if there is any form of misconduct, even in fact relatively minor, it has to be referred to the SDT because it exceeds the power that the SRA has to deal with it internally. And then your realistic goal is to negotiate an agreed outcome starting with an agreed statement of, of facts on the basis of which uh, a sanction will be put forward to the SDT for the SDT to, to approve. Now, I know that both Ian and Fergal have a great deal of experience of negotiating those, and so I'll, I'll hand over to them on that. But perhaps the timing question I might just say a little bit about, when and how should you broach the whole question of WP engagement the reality is that the issues need to have sufficiently crystallised that the SRA thinks it's got a decent handle on the problem. But equally, ideally, you don't want them to have got to the point where they're completely entrenched. That is these days perhaps harder because of the habit now of serving you with a 2.3 notice as the first that you're going to hear of how the SRA is seeing the case. And therefore, realistically, increasingly, the first opportunity you really have to engage with them, WP, is likely to be when you get that notice, you engage with them about correcting the notice in the various ways you're going to uh, argue for. And in parallel with that, you're saying, and how about we? And then you map out what you might be suggesting by way of the WP conclusion to it. But um, Ian, you might have a different preferred strategy for that. It, it, it really, Patricia, depends on the facts and the circumstances of particular cases. You might start that process very early on, or you might sort of leave it until sort of quite sort of relatively late in the day. But in considering with clients whether a regulatory settlement agreement, which is the internal SRA, raise for it or an agreed outcome, which is effectively an agreed outcome that's presented to the SDT for their approval. The advantages of that are that you can agree a set of facts, which include obviously the mitigation that the firm or the individual might want to put forward and manage the risk that somebody else decides what the facts are and what the mitigation is and, and puts their sort of different slant on it. And in addition, it obviously brings the whole process to an end and, and quite a lot of people just want to get it over with and finished, particularly, well, obviously and most likely in those cases where you know there is going to be an, an adverse outcome and you may as well get it sorted sooner rather than later. And the the practical issues are around when to broach it, which is the topic you've picked on, Patricia, but how do you pitch it to the SRA in terms of what is the likely sensible agreed outcome and then negotiating the statement of facts and mitigation that sits behind that because that can often be a crucial process in ensuring that when the matter is published it comes out in a form and in a way that is balanced and fair to your clients which obviously as I said is not necessarily what might happen if if somebody else determines the outcome. So they are an important part of, of managing the process. And I think everybody, except in the most plain and obvious cases that have no merit, is going to be thinking and discussing with their client as to whether they are appropriate. OK, so despite your best interests, your client has been referred to the SDT. Um, what next? An obvious immediate concern for any respondent is the publicity of the referral, how to stop that if they can, and handling press interest if their case is a particularly sensitive one. Yes, well, ordinarily, once the tribunal has certified that a case discloses a case to answer, the SRA will publish a brief statement of the allegations which identify the firm or solicitor in question and the essential allegations. And the SRA, one has to acknowledge, does this in the public interest so that, for example, consumers and prospective employers 
are able to make an informed choice about whether to instruct or employ the solicitor or firm. However, before publishing, the SRA will invite representations from the firm or the solicitor and will consider arguments as to why, in the particular circumstances, publication would not be in the public interest or the solicitor's private interests outweigh the public interest. And arguments against publication will usually, perhaps invariably, draw on Article 2 and Article 8 of the European Convention on human rights, which protect the the rights to life and to respect for private and family life. Uh, In practice, in my experience, these arguments are very unlikely to succeed unless there is cogent evidence that publication would put the solicitor's life at risk. The impact, for example, that that the publication may have on the solicitor or, or the firm isn't really going to cut much, much mustard with the the SRA, given the public interest context. In an exceptional case, I mean, it may even be possible to invoke convention rights to stop the prosecution itself, as happened in the case of the SRA and Solicitor Z, where the tribunal found that continuation of the prosecution would pose a real and immediate risk to the solicitor's life and interfere with his private life in breach of convention. But that sort of exceptional Situation apart, I'm afraid one one ought to expect that these things are going to be fought out in the glare of publicity. I agree with Richard. The point of public principle is that proceedings should happen in public. Justice should happen in public, and Inspector and the SRA, the Divisional Court, made it clear that there shouldn't be privacy surrounding the proceedings. And that extends to the fact that a case has been referred uh, and will be proceeding in due course before the tribunal. But there are occasions, as Richard has indicated, particularly under Article 8, where there may be a risk to the private life of an individual, including his family life, which, even though the SRA may be proceeding in accordance with their legal rights and duties, nevertheless means that there shouldn't be publicity. And the sort of occasions, from my experience, are where the solicitor is mentally ill, has got severe depression caused by the very risk of publicity. That would have still to be exceptional. Or where there may be risks of publicity caused to private family members children, and others. In all of those sorts of cases, and it's really Article 8 that one is looking at here, it's the question of proportionality that becomes important. The SRA is likely to be proceeding in accordance with the law. The question is, is it disproportionate under Article 8 for publicity to occur? And that requires cogent facts often supported by expert evidence. The very rare cases are Article 2 cases where there may be a risk to the life of an individual through ill health or a risk of suicide. They can arise, but they are, as Richard says, very rare. And can I just add reference to a case called Lou and the SRA, which was decided in 2022 by the Divisional Court, where the judge in that case was quite critical of the anonymization of other individuals involved in the facts, particularly in that case, the firms and their partners. So I think there will be a greater challenge in in not only sort of anonymizing the parties and dealing with sort of publication along the lines that um, Tim and Richard have mentioned, but even those that are not directly a party to the proceedings may find that they are mentioned in proceedings and have more difficulty in persuading the SRA and SDT that their names ought to be anonymized. So it's very difficult to keep all of this private. What is the significance for your clients of the fact that the proceedings are likely to be fought out in public, in particular if you're dealing with a case of particular interest to the media, whether the legal media or indeed the mainstream media, which we've seen increasingly is more interested in the high-profile SRA prosecutions in the SDT? Well, I think it's it's all about reputation, isn't it? And while I think it's probably fair to say that, aside from some of the 
behavioural misconduct cases that we've seen. Um, disciplinary cases tend not to attract the same degree of media scrutiny as other types of litigation. We are starting to see more coverage of the SDT and, and SRA processes. Traditionally, SDTs haven't been, the I think, covered very much in the mainstream media, but in the last couple of weeks, I've certainly seen the Daily Mail reporting on um, one of the high-profile cases going through there at the moment. So it's beginning to change, and online media such as Roll on Friday and Legal Cheat do tend to run stories about the more salacious cases. We're also increasingly seeing parallel proceedings where, where we have malpractice claims being run in tandem with regulatory proceedings, and with Parliament and, and certain media organisations regularly being prepared to be quite outspoken about, about some law firms, which we've seen in the context of human rights lawyers and, and law firms which have, for example, acted for Russian oligarchs. There's clearly a need for reputational risks to be borne in mind and, and properly managed. And that may mean ensuring that there's an agreed media communications strategy internally. It may go further than that. It might involve a full-scale external crisis management protocol and a client comms strategy. And that, that really does have to be considered carefully as when disciplinary cases do attract publicity, the reputational stakes for individuals who have spent many years building up a practice and for law firms can be very high indeed. I think just thinking of one example, the firm which I acted for, which was at the centre of sustained regulatory scrutiny over a number of years leading up to what amounted to the, the longest ever SDT trial, probably felt like it had a, an existential crisis on its hands. And many people will remember the media coverage of the allegations, but how many people remember the outcome of that case when the clients were exonerated in full? So I think having media advisors, comms advisors on, on hand is, is a really important part of the process. Could I just add there, Fergal, that in my experience, general or internal communications advice is, is sometimes not, not enough. That advice can be too risk averse and sometimes not sufficiently technically informed. So what I've found works well is integration of the communication strategy with a, a comms savvy legal team. And that tends to produce the best results and avoids errors in the way that the, the publicity is handled. I think certainly for the legal sector press, it's definitely an advantage to have a lawyer who has existing relationships with the legal journalists and perhaps can give off-the-record briefings uh, that may well form an important part of the, the strategy of, of the media handling. Reputational risk, as you said, is obviously going to be a very important factor, particularly for firms uh, of any size. I would say that if no coverage isn't a realistic goal, then probably keeping the coverage as, as boring and bland as possible is best. <laughs> well, that's not generally speaking my aim for my openings, but <laughs> I mean, I, no, more seriously though, I think there is a real balance here because I think as counsel, the last thing you want is to be blindsided by what the PR team have been getting up to on the media side of things. But equally, it can be a very unwelcome distraction as you're about to start cross-examining the main witness to have to take time out to look at some press statement. What have you. So there, there's a very um, delicate balance there. And if you like, my dream solution to that delicate balance is exactly as you described, the media savvy legal team, as in the partner who is leading the case, having brought in the right external experts to advise on that. And only very occasionally do we as counsel in the middle of trial need to concern ourselves with that. But undoubtedly, part of what you are trying to do is to seed the right sound bites to turn the, the story, to turn the narrative that is otherwise dominating the way the media are seeing the case. Because you, you want to win the case in the tribunal, but you also want as far as possible to help to rehabilitate your client's reputation, which, um, uh, as Fergus already said, is likely to have taken a hit with many people reading the way that the SRA has opened the case and losing interest well before it gets to the end. Can I just sound a quick, a quick note of caution? on that. It's important that whatever is said to the press is consistent with your client's position in the tribunal. I have been in cases where a, a very careful position is advanced in relation to admission and real, realistic acknowledgements and, and so on. And uh, a, a very different message is sent out to the press. So it's sometimes to the client's disadvantage. 
Well, I was certainly taking it as read that there would be consistency in the comms. But yes, that, that would be pretty essential to the whole thing. And, and involving your council team and indeed solicitor team in that in the process, at least giving them a, a heads up as to what you're doing. The worst of that is the SRA has on occasions prosecuted firms for making misleading public statements where they haven't had expert advice. So Michael's point about the need for careful expertise is really well made. Yes, there's not much point putting a lot of care into how you're going to fight the case in the STT and to shoot yourself in the foot and find yourself prosecuted for what you've done in the press. Okay, we've talked about disclosing documents to the SRA within the SRA's investigative process. Uh, and many of our listeners are no doubt familiar with the rules of disclosure in a civil litigation context. Um, what about disclosure in the SDT? Are the rules different again? Well, there's no equivalent to disclosure under the civil procedure rules. The SRA will commence proceedings of the tribunal by making an application, which must be supported by a statement setting out the allegations and the supporting facts and exhibiting any documents on which the SRA relies. The tribunal standard directions will then usually require the respondent, firm or solicitor to serve all documents on which they rely. There's no express requirement in the rules for the SRA to disclose unused material that may undermine its case or support the defence, as would happen in criminal proceedings. It seems to me in principle, however, that the SRA is on, under an obligation to disclose that material in order to ensure that the respondent's, respondent's right to a fair trial under Article 6 is vindicated. As far as I'm aware, that point's never been attested by the tribunal. Perhaps it has been, but certainly I think in, in, in the context of other regulators, it is a point that's been discussed. But it's certainly something which, from a defence point of view, one needs to keep in mind as to whether there may be documents which ought to have been disclosed, which haven't been. I agree with all of that, Richard. You know, I think it's really important to think carefully about whether there are potentially other categories of documentation which the SRA has which or, or has within its control which which might be relevant. Might there be correspondence between the SRA and third party organizations, complainants, media organizations? Might they have material from other regulators or, or law enforcement agencies which would be relevant to the prosecution? I certainly have made in the past specific disclosure applications to good effect in circumstances like that. Certainly, and I've referred them to the Attorney General's guidelines as a, a parallel that, that should apply by analogy in, in relation to the SRA and haven't actually had kickback on, on that analysis from the SRA. If they do have unused material that, you know, meets the relevant test, that they should indeed have to disclose it at that point. Certainly, some regulators have uh, come unstuck when they haven't, haven't complied with those rules. Could I just add as well that Issues can sometimes arise where there are multiple proceedings in the SDT arising from the same or similar facts and the issue about cross-disclosure between different proceedings and that can raise some interesting issues and is certainly a point that's been run on behalf of respondents that, that actually you should, you should see documents relating to those other parallel proceedings because they may contain things relevant to your defence. Now, this is an enormous topic, and clearly there's no one-size-fits-all approach to the actual SDT trial process. But what are some of the key takeaways from your experience of that process? Well, I, I think one of the points I'd make is that cases with significant points of law can be quite challenging for the SDT. It very much depends on the expertise and experience of the particular panel. But as a general rule, when you have a complex point of law, the tribunal members are going to be more reliant than usual on the advocacy that's provided by the, the parties and the, the quality of that ag advocacy, the way that the, the legal analysis is, is presented and, and whether the, the panel can um, understand that. So sometimes the particular experience of the advocate is important so that the tribunal's confidence in the advocate and their expertise can be quite a, an important factor in my experience. Another related point is that 
often where you have a difficult point of law, the tribunal's decision is framed in terms of a factual assessment, which can make appealing the point of law difficult because it's framed in terms of factual findings. And a third point on on the same theme, I think, is that when you're dealing with some of these complex legal points, there is a risk that having too many technical legal points can slightly backfire and potentially be counterproductive because what what you need is for the tribunal to to keep the thread of the the main merits and if you like the the story of the case and and there's a danger in in bogging down the defense in too many technical points i agree with michael there's quite a risk in the tribunal whichever side of the argument one is on if too many even quite good legal points are run where a strong factual case with only one cogent legal or regulatory point is required to reach the result you need for your client. Perhaps a guiding point is this. In before the tribunal, you need to run your case with the minimum number of factual and legal points that are required to reach the result which you need in your client's best interests. A tribunal, perhaps unlike a commercial court judge, is not going to thank you for running numerous fringe points of fact on which nothing in truth really turns. And they're not going to thank you if you're running too many fringe legal points. It's critical that you've got a strong factual case and a cogent legal and regulatory analysis honed down to only what you really need to reach the result which is in the best interest of your client should be obtained. I'd certainly endorse that. And I think in some ways, particularly if your client's facing one of these very overloaded charge sheets, which as we've all been experiencing, I think is increasingly the case, the advocacy challenges around how you best present the case to the tribunal, if anything, greater than appearing in the Supreme Court, you know, in the sense that you have to make those judgments about how, what targets to pick in the panoply of stuff that you could tackle in what the SRA is throwing at your at your client. And think very hard because I think your written submissions are, if anything, more important than they would be in, let's say, commercial litigation. Because in commercial litigation, you can basically expect a good commercial judge to cut through the problem and arrive at the key issues that are determinative, frankly, despite rather than because of the quality of the advocacy in front of them. The same is not true of the tribunal. You need to think very hard about how you're going to give them a helpful written route map through the problem, organising the decisions for them in the order in which they should tackle them and demonstrating to them why they should accept the narrative arc that you supply them with, demonstrably not ducking any of the difficult questions that the documents present you with, and thereby becoming their trusted guide through the problem, both the factual and the legal aspects of it. Now, once you've equipped them with that, your oral submissions can then become much more interactive and much more exchanging with them, feeling out where they're uncertain, where they need more help, and less having to set out for them by way of the oral submissions all of the detail of the narrative, or at least that's an approach I've found that has worked in some of the heavier cases in front of the tribunal. You've given us the sense of the enormous number of issues that have to be addressed and the ways in which uh, costs can obviously very quickly rack up uh, with disclosure and getting all the ducks in a row and so on, putting your best foot forward. Where are we then on costs in terms of the case law and the protection for respondents? Well, it's actually quite depressing for any respondent. So I've got bad news. The starting assumption, I think, has to remain that as any respondent, your prize should be to exonerate yourself and not to seek to recover the cost of doing so, because that remains an uphill struggle. Last year, the Supreme Court gave judgment in a case we had all been watching called Flynn Farmer, which concerned a challenge to the general presumption that there would be no order for costs made against a regulator following an unsuccessful prosecution. That case was potentially of interest to all regulated professionals. In the case of, of solicitors, as I mentioned earlier, the, the costs of 
successfully defending a lengthy prosecution can be very significant and sometimes not insured. Although the Flynn Farmer case didn't concern the solicitor's profession generally, the SRA did intervene in it and made submissions to preserve the status quo. So the general presumption that it wouldn't be required to pay successful respondents their legal costs. Unfortunately, the Law Society didn't take the opportunity to present an alternative view. Whether that would have made a difference to the outcome, I don't know. But um, the Supreme Court in Flynn Farmer held that there was no general legal principle that all public bodies should enjoy a protected cost position when they lose a case. But in practice, the position remains unchanged for solicitors under a case called Baxendale Walker. The position is that the SRA is is not usually subject to adverse costs orders and disciplinary proceedings unless the complaint is found to have been improperly brought. Bad a point there, Fergal, because it, it is a slightly depressing picture, but I'm afraid I was the guy who, who created the Baxendale-Walker principle, having lost the first instance. I then ran this point in the Divisional Court and the Court of Appeal. But I think there is this positive point for practitioners to get out of it. People read Baxendale-Walker as if there must be something improper in the prosecution of the case, whereas actually it's a bit broader than that. It, it could be unreasonable, could be unreasonably brought. The language is often read too narrowly. I know you've got that point because of your interest in Flynn Farmer. But from a practitioner's point of view, quite important not to read too narrowly the scope of the cost provision which could be made for a successful respondent. I think the general position used to be that you would have to show that the case was a shambles from start to finish, but that's no longer, I don't think, the, the case, Patricia, is it? No, I think I think it's really, the focus now is on reasonableness, I think. But what I would also say is that Flynn Farmer puts the focus back on whether in the SRA's particular regime, there would indeed be a chilling effect from um, being held liable for costs. Now, let's not forget that crucially, the SRA's regime does include an obligation on the regulator to act proportionately and target its regulatory action only at where that's needed. That's section 28. That's a statutory obligation on the SRA. So when you were actually using the measuring stick of reasonableness, where the SRA has acted disproportionately, over-prosecuting things, throwing the regulatory book at something which is minor and can and should have been dealt with either without action or at least with, with action that's purely within the in-house regime, there is an argument for saying that imposing a cost liability for that doesn't have a chilling effect. It's actually consistent with the Section 28 duty because what it does is ensure that the SRA is encouraged to target its resource consistently with that duty rather than essentially spray gunning its regulatory resource across the entire field. So I think there is scope there post Flynn Farmer to say that within the SRA's own regime, we're no longer talking about an omni-shambles, we're just talking about unreasonable prosecutorial behaviour. And in addition, just to broaden it out even more, let's not forget that I think in Flynn Farmer, financial hardship was identified as an available good reason for making a cost order, which is there to mitigate, I suppose, some of the scenarios Fergal was talking about earlier, where you may have an uninsured And then a a further point is, coming back to without prejudice discussions with the SRA, it may be worthwhile making those without prejudice savings to cost so you can demonstrate to the STT that you, in fact, were willing to agree to an outcome which is not too dissimilar to where they ended up, um, which provides an argument to say that effectively the SRA's costs were, it was unnecessary for them to incur them because we could have got there a lot more quickly and efficiently. And there is a small crumb of comfort for respondents, which is that if the SRA appeals an SDT decision to the divisional court and the appeal is thrown out, you still have the loser pays costs regime in place. So all is not lost. Even if you have to go quite a long way to to get it. Okay, now we've covered a lot in this podcast series, even if we've only scratched the surface in terms of potential topics. 
We've not even dipped our toes into talking about ABSs, self-reports, and a whole host of other topical matters. I'd like to end this series, please, with your concluding remarks. Well, to kick that off, I think what I would like to say is that we we spend a lot of time criticising aspects of the way the SRA runs its process. But I think it's very important not to lose sight of how difficult a job it is being a regulator. And um, particularly so now that the SRA is attempting to tackle ever larger cases. I spent a chunk of my own life as a regulator sitting on the board of the BSB. And I really think one should emphasise that it's important not to demonise the regulator, even when you very strongly disagree with their view of the case or the way in which they're handling it. We all of us do share an interest in the profession being well regulated, but also in advocacy terms, you're going to be far more persuasive if you engage with the SRA in a way that shows you do understand why they're concerned about the underlying conduct and that you do have respect for the job that they are trying to do. A lot of the difficulties that we encounter in the way the SRA does that job do come down to lack of resource in trying to cover a simply enormous field. So maintain that respect and a constructive tone in your engagement. And then if you don't carry the day, that approach will help mitigate the fallout for your client. I think I'd make three concluding points. Firstly, it's very important to match objectives to resources and risk. So huge volume may obstruct the prosecution, but it will also escalate costs. And as we've just been discussing, those are highly unlikely to be recovered. Secondly, I think crucial to understand the strengths and weaknesses of the tribunal and the SRA and formulate your strategy accordingly. And thirdly, uh, being realistic about the outcome that you may achieve and always being willing to consider whether an agreed outcome is the best solution. Can I just sort of finish by saying first, um, when I started doing this gosh, nearly 30 years ago, almost all these cases related to financial client account matters relating largely to sole practitioners of very small law firms. We've moved quite a lot since then. We've talked about the process, obviously, but we haven't, as as Marianne mentioned, touched upon ABSs who are almost entirely dealt with by the SRA subject to appeal. The SRA's finding powers are now £25,000 under the Economic Crime and Transparency Bill. They will have unlimited fines in relation to economic crimes, but don't assume that means what it says. Economic crimes basically can be defined as anything involving money or AML, So that will be quite an expansion of their powers. And of course, the SRA is now moving into territory that historically it would not have been involved in at all. Sexual misconduct and bullying and harassment in the workplace and law firm culture. So what was a minority sport, if I could call it that, that involved a small number of members of the profession is now quite widespread. And I think firms who haven't had a brush with the SRA yet, perhaps at least need to do a a bit of planning as to what might we do if the situation arises? Do we need to have um, a plan both in relation to internally, externally in terms of advisors and also in terms of media so that if things happen quickly, we, we can look to that and we'll be one step ahead and it won't take us a few days to work through those types of issues. So, Sadly, this is a bigger problem for just about every law firm, and these are issues that they all need to think about. Ian mentioned the breadth of the work, and I'm going to give a little bit of advice, if I may, to anyone practicing in this area, but in particular junior lawyers who may be finding their feet, which is to bring a broad perspective to the work. I think that the label professional discipline may, in the minds of some, obscure the huge variety that the regulatory lawyer must be equipped to deal with. Disciplinary issues arise in myriad legal and factual contexts from esoteric tax planning or complex multi-party commercial litigation at one end of the spectrum uh, to the dynamics of the office Christmas party at the other. And you have to be or have to have, I think, complete mastery of the particular context to represent the client effectively. You have to be a lawyer in the fullest sense, it seems to me. Indeed, it may be that the SRA's lack of understanding of the context is the cause of the client's difficulties. And and subject to what we've been talking about of reasonableness and being realistic, it seems to me that there'll be many cases 
where it's realistic to aim to get the SRA or the tribunal, as it may be, to see the client's conduct in the best possible light. And I think it's worth having in mind that responsible regulators generally prefer not to take action than to sanction, and responsible tribunals generally prefer to acquit rather than convict if they have good reason to do so. So I would say draw on everything you know about the law and about the legal and factual setting and about human experience to give them that reason. I would just conclude with two points, two quick points, actually. One is that in my experience, the best way to put yourself into a position where as a respondent, you can successfully defend a disciplinary prosecution is to have invested the time and resources up front to know the documents back to front and to know the SRA's case better than it knows it, as anyone who's ever instructed Patricia Robertson will know. The other point I would just say is that we've been talking a lot about the disciplinary process, which keeps all of us busy. But at the risk of doing myself out of a job, I just mentioned there is potentially another way to address some of the concerns raised by these misconduct cases, and that would be to consider implementing a fitness to practice regime. The SRA has power to do that. It hasn't to date made use of that power, but it has been applied with some measure of success in other professions, including the barrister's profession. But that's a whole other podcast, so I'll just leave that there. Well, I'll conclude, if I may, with two thoughts. The client's best interests are served when one puts his or her or its, if it's a firm, best case forward. And that requires, as everybody has been saying, mastery of the facts, mastery of the law, and clarity of presentation. But it's really important to appreciate that the best case being put forward also requires the client to live within the regime which he, she, or it has dedicated his, her, or its professional life to support. And that lies at the core of our work. It's the appreciation of presenting any case which fits credibly into the regulatory regime. And by doing so, if you keep that dual perspective in mind, things will not go wrong. For me, things tend to go wrong where the advocate or representative has lost sight of the core principles of the regulatory regime and thereby doesn't serve the client's best interests. If you keep within the parameters of the regulatory regime and the factual and legal case, with luck, exclamation mark in brackets, success will be achieved. Well, that concludes an interesting and stimulating discussion on defending the most significant SDT cases of recent years. Once again, I'm grateful to Tim Dutton, CBE Casey, Patricia Robertson Casey, and Richard Coleman Casey of Fountain Court, as well as Fergal Cathy of Clyde & Co, Michael Stacey of Russell Cook, and Ian Miller of Kingsley Napoli for their insightful commentary. I hope our listeners have enjoyed this episode as much as we have enjoyed making it. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast. Mm-hmm.